all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And we are here today to answer your questions about any type of healthcare topic that you might have some interest in. Maybe it's a new symptom that you're having, new medication side effect. Maybe you just got some general questions about what's in the healthcare news or what's affecting you or your family. If you're not able to call, we do encourage you to email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Or if you uh, catch, maybe uh, not able to catch all the program, you can go back and uh, listen to those or set them up on a podcast. Just uh, search in your favorite podcasting app for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, and you'll be able to do that at your leisure. I hope everybody is enjoying this great weather that we've been having. Man, it's just a breath of fresh air, literally, out there. Uh, starting to see some leaves fall a little bit in Mississippi, too, and uh, certainly dry, though. So be careful with all that extra leaf litter on the ground and as dry as the trees are. You want to make sure that you're not uh, doing something foolish with fire or making sure that you... Uh, you know, if there are some fires or potential for fires for different things, uh, make sure that you're avoiding that for right now. Most places uh, who are able to put these out have burn bans out now that I've uh, um, uh, heard about. But that's a that's just a general thing to keep in mind. And then also, a lot of people in Mississippi, if you uh, just moved here recently, you may not realize this. We are the allergy capital of the world, uh, at least in the United States. So Mississippi and Jackson in particular are one of those cities that gets the dubious distinction of uh, having the most allergies and the uh, the uh, level of allergic-type symptoms tends to be higher. So that's something that can ramp up this time of year, particularly when you get drier conditions or you get a dry condition and then get a wet uh, uh, spurt right after that. A lot of these fall blooming plants will release a lot of things. And there's just a lot of stuff in the air, too, that's blowing around uh, right now. So if you are one of those individuals like myself who has fall-type allergy symptoms, you might want to do some preventive measures for them. So I get this question a lot with uh, some of my patients, and they say, you know, fall's really my time of year for things to ramp up. What can I do? There's a lot of things that you can do without a prescription. One of the best things is a nasal wash, particularly if you have those types of nasal hay fever-type symptoms 
Maybe it's profuse water watery discharge from your nose. Maybe it's a fullness in your uh, in your head, uh, sore throat from post nasal drip of increased secretions, sneezing, coughing, those kinds of things. Uh, a nasal wash is something you can do every day. There are several different methods to do it. Uh, there's things like a neti pot, uh, which sounds like a crazy name, but it's actually a very good and simple way that you can uh, wash out those nasal uh, cavities. Or uh, you can get uh, one of the other sort of applicator devices that you sort of squirt some stuff up in there. And basically what you're doing is you're mixing up some uh, sterile water, is what you want to use, uh, with um, with a constant, with a little packet of material, or you can, there's actually several different recipes to make your own, but it's basically you're mixing up some stuff that's sort of like salt water, not quite as salty as that, um, and then you squirt it up into your nose, and that helps to wash off all those allergens, and in particular, it helps your sinuses, which are these air-filled cavities in your head. Nobody exactly knows all the reasons why we have that, why we were designed with that. But basically, um, they um, drain out fluid normally into your nasal passages. And if they get clogged up and there's nowhere for anything to drain out, there's always a risk of having uh, pain in your uh, forehead or in your uh, sometimes people have some tooth pain with that too, particularly right around those sinuses. Or you can have overgrowth of the bacteria that are normally in there if they can't get out and drain out appropriately. It can build up pressure, and that causes sort of a sinus infection. So you can help prevent that from happening by doing that nasal washout. And again, lots of different over-the-counter ways to do it. doesn't really matter one versus the other, whichever one works for you. Uh, but that's an excellent way to prevent that and, again, doing that daily. And then if you still have some symptoms, another good thing to do, and this is an over-the-counter medication, used to be a prescription, is a nasal steroid. So this could be something like nasal fluticasone is the fancy name for it. it used to be called Flonase, still out there. Uh, and uh, this basically, that's a, a low-dose nasal steroid that you can squirt on those directly on those nasal passages once a day, and it helps to just reduce the risk of having overgrowth of those nasal passages in in um, response to all the allergens out there. Uh, so those two things together are very effective. So doing the washout first and then following with that nasal steroid. Again, things you can do uh, over-the-counter remedies to help prevent a lot of those uh, nasal-type uh, allergy symptoms. And, it, again, it can cause a lot of problems. A lot of people have a nighttime cough that is um, that is caused by that just because when you lay down, it drains down the back of your throat. So if it goes much beyond that, certainly antihistamines are good to take. It can interfere with the way that you think and test performance, and sometimes you just feel sort of groggy. Um, though, but those may be useful during certain times of the year. And then beyond that, one step further, there's some prescription medications that you can talk to your physician about. But uh, most people, if they have problems like this and they know that they're going to have it during this time of the year, can do some of these things to help prevent it. And you don't have to call your doctor and you can just push on through this season until the next one. We're going to go to our first caller, who is Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I'd like to ask you a question, doctor. Um, uh, I, I have a very, very dear friend who is terminally ill and she has chosen to do not resuscitate. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Okay, now when I was a nurse, this meant that 
you didn't rush in with a crash cart and try to uh, do CPR and get a person on a ventilator and all that. You just let them die naturally, right? That's correct, right. Now, okay, so this person who chose do not resuscitate in, you know, in a medical facility, they're letting her lie there with, without food or water, and, and she's uh, uh, aware of what's going on. I, that, that sounds cruel. That sounds Hitlerish and Holocaust to me. Shouldn't you provide nourishment and at least water and food as long as the person is living? Yeah, that's a great question, Sue. So uh, in in certain situations, you know, what we realize now is there are there are situations because of the way that we have advances in medical technology, we can keep people alive. And by, you know, that, that term can be defined different ways by different people. They may say it's not much of a life if I can't, if I'm not able to do certain things, if I'm not able to think clearly. But we can keep the physical part of the body alive um, through lots of advances. Uh, but there are some other instances where it's sort of futile to do things to prolong life if that quality of life is going to be different. So that's why most most of the time if you check into a physician's office or in the hospital, they'll want to talk to you about something called advanced directives. And along with that is this uh, term, a DNR, do not resuscitate. And basically, that's a conversation that you should have with a physician to say, you know, uh, if if I do have a terminal illness or if I do, if my heart stops beating, if I stop breathing for some reason, there may be some circumstances where it would be futile to uh, to keep, try to keep you alive with the technology we have. Uh, and you may not want that. This is not something that is forced on anybody. This is a decision of that individual patient in discussing with their doctor or with their treatment team uh, sort of how what, what that would look like uh, to the best of their knowledge. And one thing it does not mean, you know, some, sometimes people have viewed that is you don't do anything uh, at all or do nothing routinely, as one of my uh, former uh, faculty members taught me. That's not what we mean when we say DNR. It just means that we're not going to pursue those life-prolonging measures in circumstances where it would be futile. If you have a terminal cancer and really we've gotten to the point where we might could keep you alive on a ventilator or in an ICU situation, uh, but you wouldn't be aware of anything, and really at that point, it's it would not be uh, prudent to to move forward with that kind of treatment. Now, you brought up two things like you know IV fluids or or fluids in general, if you're able to drink, and and then food. There may be some situations, particularly with a palliative care situation, that just that's a term that that is uh, supportive care that is not going to prolong life, but keeps you comfortable and tries to alleviate pain and suffering, which is a huge deal that we all in the medical profession want to do. So if you're in pain, we certainly want to give you medications to prevent that. As a person with certain terminal conditions as they progress, it is common for them to not want to eat or to at some point stop drinking water. And then you have to sort of make the decision, well, is this something that is uncomfortable to them? And sometimes, particularly with not eating food, it's not that uncomfortable for people to do that. Now, I am not in favor, and, and it is it is bad practice to when somebody signs a DNR and they get in that situation that you just cut off everything. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, I, you still have to address any 
perceived pain that that person is having to make sure that they're comfortable. Certainly feeding them or giving them fluids or water is something you want to do unless there are circumstances where that would not be the, the, the prudent thing to do. Some people have, you know, as they get uh, toward the end of their life, they might have some problems with swallowing, for instance, and that might need not be the best way to do that. But yeah, so you, I, if it's just cutting off everything, I, that would not be something that's consistent with DNR, and that's not what it means. Now, there are some situations where people get a little bit confused with this, and in those discussions, they'll say, you know what, I'm okay with giving me some medications uh, to, to correct a heart um, arrhythmia or to shock my heart back into rhythm, but I don't want to be put on a ventilator. Uh, I don't want that. Well, you know, in reality, they both sort of go together in most situations. If you have conditions that are isolated like that, it's really rare that one of those is going to prolong your life and the other not. So uh, a lot of times having those discussions with somebody to understand the complexities of it can be very confusing. Uh, it can be very complicated. Just there are all kinds of different ways that we can prolong life. Um, but we always, and what I tell families too, that are down to the wire and they're like, you know, we don't know if granddad, you know, what he would want to do. It's always best to talk about that when you're at a position where you can do that. So a lot of people will delay it and say, you know what, when I get older, I'll, I'll make those kind of decisions. I'll talk to some of my family members about that. Uh, what I tell patients that tell me that is, you know what, you have no idea what to expect. And you might have a car wreck and you may be put into situations where you can't express yourself. So while you can do that and you're healthy, you want to um, really reach out to somebody, your physician, uh, your family members, and make sure that they know about that. Because that's what I would say to a family member if they have a patient, you know, if they have a family member in the hospital and in the ICU, I've had those discussions with family members and they say, we don't know what to do. And what I always tell them is, you know, you have to think what mom or dad or whoever that family member is, what would they want to do if they could be standing right here in front of us right now? And those are hard decisions to make and emotionally laden with a lot of things. But um, but it really goes back to what does that patient want for themselves? So if you can define that and communicate that to the people you love and your physician, then I would say do that right now. So great question, Sue. Right, see a person lying there dying of thirst. It's just not right. It's, it, it, it's, it's not right. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. If they're, you know, if they're there and they're dehydrated, that certainly that's uncomfortable. Um, and that's not something that, that I would support either. Well, thank you, doctor. All right. Thank you, Sue. Let's go to Cynthia from Ridgeland. Good morning, Cynthia. Yes, sir. Good morning. How are you today? Good. Um, I wanted to ask a question about arrhythmia. Yeah. Um, so currently my doctor has put me on medication for the irregular heartbeat. So I wanted to know, is that a way to, I mean, is there ever a way to uh, cure that? And is that something I would have to stay on forever, or I just need information on that? Yeah. So when so when you say um, irregular heartbeat or, or an arrhythmia is another term for it, that's a broad category of things, and it can mean a lot of different things. Do you have any idea about like what the specific arrhythmia that you have is? Um, he just stated that there was, you know, like my heartbeat was irregular, and 
and, and prescribed the uh, medication, um, oh, I can't think of it right now, um, Estresto, I think it was, something like that. Okay. Okay. Intresto. Okay. Intresto. Yeah. Yeah. Intresto. So with an E. Yeah. I think that's, that's it. So, uh, yeah, let me back up a little bit and we'll talk about arrhythmias and sort of how you treat those. And then we'll, uh, I'll, I'll address that intresto question too. So arrhythmias are any kind of irregularity of the heartbeat. And some of them are sort of self-limiting. Some of them can be caused by other things. One of the most common ones is sinus tachycardia. That just means a normal mechanism, the normal way that the heart generates electrical impulses, but it's just a fast rhythm. Okay. So the, our, our fast rate rather. So it's a fast, faster rate than normal. And you can have that from a number of things. Sometimes it can be, uh, a, a irregularity in your thyroid and uh, gland and how it's, um, how it's functioning. It might be that you're dehydrated. It might be that you have a fever, so that's a very simple one, but there are a ton of other things that there's some part of the heart muscle, and heart muscle is really cool. It does Not only does it like pump like a normal muscle does and contract, it generates electricity, and um, it is sort of, uh, that's the way that it regulates the normal functioning, the normal rhythm of how it, um, how it uh, contracts. And if there is a, a couple, an area of heart mus- muscle that is generating an abnormal impulse or the normal electrical system of the heart is damaged in some way, like a lack of blood flow or some other reason, then you can have uh, an arrhythmia, and those can be generated in the upper two chambers of the heart or the lower two chambers of the heart. And uh, they're a little bit different in treatment as to what types there are. Um, I'll name a couple of them that are are uh, more common. So atrial fibrillation is one that's fairly common, particularly as we get older, and that's an abnormality in the upper two chambers of the heart, the atria, and it's an extra uh, little bundle of cells that is producing an electrical impulse in a way that it shouldn't, and it's not a coordinated contraction anymore in those upper two chambers. And really, the uh, the biggest cause of the biggest risk with that is cause of forming a blood clot because it's not pumping correctly. Blood may pool in the heart, and then it will form a clot that travels downstream and lodges somewhere and causes some damage. And uh, it's one of the the one of the causes of uh, stroke, for instance, if you have um, atrial fibrillation. Uh, there's things like ventricular tachycardias or um, a VTAC or um, a heart block. So all kinds of different rhythms, both slow and fast um, in rate and uh, coordinated activity. And there's generally speaking two ways to, to, to treat those with medications. One is to control the rate, the heart rate itself. So in other words, if you have a heart rate of 180 all the time, you're going to wear your heart out after a while, and it's not very a good way to prolong that because it's increasing the demands on the heart over time. Now, certainly there are lots of people, runners, younger people, that can generate a heart rate of 180 while they're running a 5K race, and they recover, and they're just fine. Um, I, by recover, I mean not recover in the hospital, like recover from being tired. Uh, but if you're 60 and you're running a heart rate of 180 all the time, there needs to be something done about that. So one set of medications would be to decrease the rate to a normal range, okay? 
Um, and there's medications to do that. Some medications will help get you back into your regular rhythm. So there are things like amiodarone, and uh, another name for that is Rhythmol. Uh, there's other medications that you that are prescribed, uh, flecainide, that can uh, control that uh, mechanism by which those heart muscles. Uh, cells produce an electrical impulse and change it in such a way that you get back into that regular rhythm. And then beyond that, there are specialists in cardiology. These are electrophysiologists uh, uh, that have trained additionally in, in addition to their, their cardiology training. And they can go in and there's really a sophisticated way with mapping out all that in 3D. So it's one of those crazy, almost look sci-fi type ways of doing that. And they can find those individual cells that are not doing their job right, and they can sort of take them out. So basically they inject something there, or they have a way to ablate or kill those cells in the heart that are making that abnormal impulse. And a lot of times that's curative, or it can at least uh, improve the situation. And then there's also ways, if you can't do that, you know, surgically through, uh, and they don't have to open you up to do that, the electrophysiologists, they do that through a catheterization uh, where there's a very small catheter that's placed in an artery to goes up, or a vein that goes up into your heart. And then the, the final way would be something like a pacemaker that's put in or a defibrillator. So this is something that has electrical wires that are placed in the heart so that it can pace the heart, so that it can give it a little bit of help in getting back into a normally paced rhythm. Uh, or if there is an abnormal string of, of uh, electrical activity, like if uh, ventricular tachycardia that's sustained over time, uh, that's something that can you know possibly cause death. So a defibrillator would monitor that. Very sophisticated devices. They monitor that, and if they detect that, it'll give the heart a little electrical shock to get it back into a regular rhythm. So that's a lot of information, but we're talking about a field of cardiology that people really specialize in. So Entresto is a really good medication that is a combination of, of two different medications, one of which uh, controls blood pressure. The other is very good mainly with heart failure. So you may have, you may want to ask your, your cardiologist or your physician about that because they may be treating you for heart failure and not arrhythmia with it. So it doesn't do as much for arrhythmias, it certainly, if you control blood pressure better and you control the function of the heart better, you'll, you'll typically have less arrhythmias. But you might want to just ask them for a little bit more details. Without knowing exactly what arrhythmia that is, it's a little hard to speculate on, you know, what you'll be doing. Now, will you be on that forever? Uh, most of the time there are maintenance drugs to do that. There are certain situations, again, based on the type of arrhythmia you have, that you might can take for a while and then you go back into a regular rhythm and then you can stop that medication. So that's something really to ask your cardiologist about or your physician about to say, is this something I'm going to have to be on forever, though? Okay. All right. Well, he did say something also. It was atrial fibrillation. Yeah, fibrillation. Right. So that's one of the more common ones. And so there's rate control with that, making sure you don't have a fast rate. And then there are some medications like Rhythmol, Amiodarone, that you can sometimes take for a while and it'll go away. 
Um, and then a uh, electrophysiology study, that's that catheterization, that procedure by the, by the cardiologist that can do that, might be another way to, you know, to go in if those things fail to get you back into a regular rhythm. Okay. Thank you so much. That's a lot of information. I needed that. Uh, you are most welcome. Keep asking those questions. Okay, thank you so much. All right, Cynthia, you take care. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning on this really nice fall uh, morning. I don't know, man, it's been such a hot summer. It's so good to say it's fall. Uh, Even when it was fall, uh, at least by the definition of it uh, last week, it was... uh, it was still very hot, so it's nice to see these temperatures. I know we're in the south. We'll get that uh, that hot snap. Uh, it's not a cold snap. We call it a hot snap here. It's that's uh, probably going to come in another week or two, or maybe even later than that. But it is sure is nice to have some cooler temperatures around. This is Southern Remedy, the program where you get to call in and ask any kind of medical question that you might have about anything related to your health or somebody in your family or a friend. We're going to go to Wes, who I believe is in Baton Rouge. Good morning, Wes. Good morning. Thanks for calling. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, but my, my issue is I've been diagnosed uh, with diabetes. It's it, pill controlled but i've been diagnosed for about four years and you know, taking metformin phenofibrate torvastatin thedia uh, but uh i my work was in and out of work and i haven't had work through insurance insurance through my job rather uh, for a couple of years and I, I i put some pills to the side thinking okay i'll just take them here and there you know, to kind of space them out until I couldn't afford insurance again, but it just hasn't happened. But uh, I started developing neuropathy in my feet. I mean, my feet have always been cold, and I was I was just thought it was by nature, but evidently it was the beginnings of uh, you know, poor circulation. But uh, now when I scratch above my ankle at the base of my shin, I get these needle-sticking pains through the side of my foot, shooting off all around my foot. And someone told me that it's a possibility that if I started taking medications again, that if the nerves weren't destroyed, that it could possibly get better. And I just wanted to see what you thought about that. Yeah, that is a difficult situation. So I have a lot of, um, you know, I have a lot of patients that get in this situation where, Either they change insurances or change jobs, and they had to make some tough decisions about what to do. And, um, you know, I always try to work with them on that. I think in your case, you know, diabetes is one thing we know how to treat pretty well. Uh, and for most people, you can make a pretty big impact in that and get it controlled. Unfortunately, the longer it goes uncontrolled, the higher that blood sugar is for longer periods of time that's going to do some damage to different organs. And one of those organs or, or, or tissues is your nervous tissue. And, you know, we, we sort of describe this when we teach it as sort of a pins uh, and needle sensation that you're describing or a numbness, and it tends to be a stocking glove type distribution. In other words, where you would wear stockings or, or you know, long socks uh, from your feet all the way up to your knees or in your hands. And um, it is something that if you treat the diabetes, you can both prevent it and sometimes make it pretty dramatically better if you get the diabetes under control. Because it, what's happening is that blood sugar is so high 
that it's affecting how those nerves work and they're getting confused and they're sending different things and where you would normally feel just some light touch or, uh, you know, the motion of your scratching your shins or your ankles. Now it's feeling like pins and needles and they're exactly right. Uh, the people you talk to saying, you know, if, if you get that under better control, the, the glucose, the blood sugar under better control, then that might make an impact. It's not going to be dramatic overnight, but over a period of weeks or even months, then you might see that, um, that get better. What now? Here's what I tell patients. Like sometimes, you know, I I try every from time to time. Pay, people end up in this situation. I'll say, okay, if we have to choose, here's the medications that I would prioritize. And you know, you gave me I think four medications there. The only one that's directly treating the diabetes would would be the metformin, and that would be the one. Thankfully, that is not all that expensive. If you don't have insurance, you definitely want to call around to different pharmacies. See who's got the best prices. There are other ways to get discounts, like a good RX card is one that you can present at a pharmacy and you can get medications at a discount. And then getting three months at a time, while it may be a little bit more than what you would normally pay just getting it month to month, is probably going to save you money over that three-month stretch. So if you do all of those things, you can probably get that uh, that amount that you would pay total on metformin, taking it twice a day. If it's extended-release metformin, you probably want to break it back out into twice a day. Then that's probably going to be somewhere from ten to fifteen dollars max uh, a month. So it's you know depending on what your budget is, that could have a big effect. And then don't forget, there's other ways to treat diabetes. So what you everybody sort of focuses on what you eat, and that is important. So getting some information out there, you can go on the internet, go to the American Diabetes Association, and look at what they have online. Try to stick to that as much as possible. But exercise is extremely important. So if you can, even something like walking briskly. In fact, I had a guy that one of my patients who did really well with this. He was a he worked in construction. And he just added on an hour a day of really brisk walking, and uh, he was able to come off of some of his medications by doing that. The other three medications you mentioned are cholesterol medications, so the Zetia, the Phenofibrate, and the, um, I can't remember if it was a Torvastatin. Yeah. So those, those are to treat cholesterol. The most important one of that group is going to be that atorvastatin because that's the only one of those three that, in addition to getting your cholesterol down, would decrease your risk of a heart attack or a stroke. And because you have diabetes, that's going to be uh, a higher risk. So if you had to, if that's the only medications you needed right now, um, you know, I would try to prioritize those. But the diabetes one, particularly as it relates to your neuropathy. Um, that's, that's a good way to, to prioritize is to go with that metformin. Now you still are not going to know what your blood sugar is. And there's, you know, again, two ways to do that. Finger stick glucoses are one, but one that's even better to see like sort of long-term effects is an A1C. And, um, while there is a cost to that, what you may can do is go to either a free clinic, and there are several. I don't know what's available in the Baton Rouge area or in Louisiana, but I bet there's probably a clinic that could at least check that and some other things uh, that needed to be checked periodically. Or a lot of times you can just look and see who's having a health fair 
And uh, at health fairs, there's two big things that they check. One is a hemoglobin A1C, and that's that average three-month average of your blood sugar. And another is a cholesterol panel. So you can save yourself a little bit of money that way by looking for those. And those are usually free screenings. They do them on site. You'll have the results before you leave. Um, But that's the kind of stuff, if you're in sort of that middle place where you don't have insurance, that's what I would try to do. Okay. Can, can I tack on one more question? Sure. I have terrible acid reflux when I eat certain fried foods that I'm not supposed to be eating, <laughs> but I love food. And, and it's consistent for the past couple of years, but every time I have a bout with acid reflux, the pain shoots down my left arm, at least to my elbow. And every time, but when I take an antacid, a Tums or whatever it is, and it subsides, all that pain goes away. I've never had any other ill effects from it. It's just like, it just in tandem with the acid reflux in my chest, hurting the pain shoots down my arm. Yeah. It scares my wife to death, but it goes away with every case. Is that something I should be worried about? If it changes, um, you know, I, coincidentally, I have similar symptoms when I have reflux. So um, now they do overlap with some of those same symptoms uh, from decreased blood supply to your heart. What it doesn't, you know, sort of correlate with it coming from your heart would be if it's not like if you can walk faster up a hill and that pain either goes away or it doesn't get worse or it's not brought on by that. Uh, certainly reflux pain is not something that's going to cause, uh, I mean, reflux is in by itself is not going to cause, you know, a pain that's coming from your heart, but because those nerves are pretty close to one another that you can have that kind of sensation down your arm. I would say if it goes, if you know, it's, it's associated with that every time. And there are other times that you eat other foods that aren't those triggers. It's probably okay. You can take a, you know, if you take a Pepsid or a, a Nexium or something like that over the counter and it goes away, that's probably not right. from your heart. But if it changes or it persists or you're having it with activity, then that's the point where you want to go get it checked out. Exactly, exactly. Okay. I appreciate that info. Uh, you are most welcome, Wes. And look look for those ways out there. You might want to, you know, even some of those health fairs, uh, if you're in a position like Wes, you want to, you know, uh, Ask around about, you know, in, insurance possibilities or other sort of bridge type thing. There's a lot of things like that out there. And, you know, here in the Jackson area, we have, uh, you know, UMC puts on the Jackson Free Clinic, which is a, a great resource for the area. But there's others, too, that are around. Um, and those are perfectly legitimate things. Some people will say, well, you know, I'm not really I, I have a job. I have a home. That's really for people who don't. No, it's for people who are in the situation where they can't afford or can't get access to health care, and that may be a temporary thing. But check that out where you are. There are some other resources out there. If you're not able to call today, you can always email us, and we do read those emails, try to get back to you as soon as we can, and share those on air if appropriate, and you give us permission to do that. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. And speaking of an email, I have one right here. So this is a listener. I'll sort of summarize what he said, but um, said, I uh, love your program, but this is uh, it's a bit too long to call. So about five years ago, this uh, person had an above 
of the knee amputation, and then three years ago developed a an inguinal hernia. So a hernia, for all of you out there, that's uh, a defect in the abdominal wall where um, from time to time abdominal content sometimes can either sort of push out or poke out completely there, and it can be painful. It can can cause some complications if a loop of bowel gets sort of trapped in there and loses its blood supply. So certainly something to get checked out. So back to the email. Uh, my primary care uh, doctor didn't think it was uh, a big deal at the time. Now it's gotten larger and more difficult to push back in. I went to uh, my primary care doctor about a month ago, and they referred me to a surgeon. I was there during the day, so it was not uh, out at that time. They sent me for a CT scan, and nothing showed up. And now it's gotten even larger and very difficult to get back in. So basically, that's the situation that they're in right now. Uh, They know that the pain that they have is uh, right uh, in their thigh, sort of where their buttocks uh, um, and their thigh sort of comes together. Uh, so that's their question about what to do. So basically a hernia in this situation, you want to get it checked out and a surgeon is a good person to see. Now, normally a CT scan is going to show this, so I'm not sure why it did not show up. So it makes me wonder whether or not this, um, this area that's sort of poking out or pushing out through that's a noticeable around the skin might be something different. One of the things that they might can do in the office is to re-examine this with an ultrasound. So an ultrasound is something you can do at the bedside that sort of can see these defects and see what actually is sort of poking out or different maneuvers to get it to poke back out. So I'm not sure if they did that during that same period of time. It's occasionally a CT scan might miss something, particularly if it's a smaller defect in the in the wall. But if it's still causing you problems, I honestly, I would, and 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 you're given a very good description. I would probably go to a different surgeon and just to get a good exam first, and then either a a repeat CT or another or an ultrasound just to sort of see uh, if they what's going on in the area. And it may not be an inguinal hernia. There are other things in the area that can sort of mimic that. Um, there are hydroceles and certainly other things in the uh, testicular canal and the inguinal canal. Um, sometimes other masses in the area or lymph nodes can do that too. So it's a little tricky, but uh, I would say uh, I'd get a second opinion. You could probably have to work through your primary care person to do that just to sort of nail this down. That's a long time to have it. Inguinal hernias tend to get bigger with time. So the longer you have them, the more likely they are to get bigger. Uh, some people, you know, you can have this and not require surgery. Uh, it can be sort of an elective type thing, uh, particularly if you're if you have greater risk factors for that. So that's my advice is to get a second opinion on that because you're given a really good description for what an inguinal hernia might be, but it might be something else that they just need to investigate a little bit further got another email here and this is a follow-up from a question we had a couple of weeks ago about COVID risk and our listener states that they go to the gym quite frequently uh, but they um, are a little appalled at what they see in the gym and they have lots of people that are very close to one another that are unmasked they try to wear a mask for their own protection in the gym and they wanted to know about risk basically from uh, COVID right now and sort of what to do moving forward So, uh, you know, 
at the point we're at right now, we're still in technically in the pandemic, but we're reaching a point where we're seeing more of an endemic situations. And endemic situations are when you have uh, diseases that pop up in certain areas, but it's not really affecting multiple parts of the world all at the same time. Now, because of sort of how COVID has developed over time, and this is what viruses do, they sort of mutate, and sometimes they get uh, certain characteristics that are more advantageous for them to uh, either cause more damage or to travel easier from individual to individual. And our most latest waves of COVID, uh, the Omicron sort of waves uh, here in the States, Basically, they are really easy to get. Um, It's easy to transmit, much, much easier than those first waves that came through uh, with with, uh, COVID. Uh, So masks do help somewhat with that. But in certain situations with poor airflow and very tight uh, areas and closed areas, certainly that makes it much easier for you to get that. It, air systems do work very, fairly well. So at a gym, you know, depending on, you know, where it is and sort of how it's designed, that should decrease your uh, your risk of, of uh, catching it. Certainly wiping down equipment. When I go to the gym and I'm using equipment, I make sure that I wipe it down. In fact, I'm probably, the owners are probably looking at me suspiciously because I'm using so many of their uh, wipes, those alcohol wipes that we have. Uh, to wipe everything down. I'm that guy. But uh, I just want to protect other people behind me. But, uh, you know, that's another way to to try to limit that as much as possible. If you're in a gym, though, you are going to be breathing heavier if you're doing the right kind of work. Uh, and that, you know, is going to be a, another risk factor there. Now, what about wearing a mask? You know, I know a lot of people are like, you know, I can't wear a mask. Certainly, I, how do you exercise with a mask? You can do it. Uh, it is perfectly safe to do that. Um, you're not going to, you know, cause any damage or anything from, from exercising, particularly if it's mild weights, even light aerobic activity. You can certainly do that at the gym to help protect yourself. Although, as I said, you know, it, it needs to be, uh, probably needs to be a tighter fitting mask around the edges to help try to filter some of those particles. You're not going to filter out viral particles. What you're filtering out is the virus in little droplets of, uh, of saliva or mucus that are traveling through the air after we cough or sneeze or even talk really loudly for a long time. So that uh, can all sort of decrease your risk of that. So I would say... You know, at this point, myself, I'm relatively low risk. I'm going to the gym and unmasked, uh, just to be honest about that. And, I, you know, again, that's a, it's a wider open, bigger gym space that I go to. Um, that's probably less of a risk right now. However, if you see the increase in activity, and we probably will have that in the fall, um, that's, you know, maybe an indication that you may want to wear that mask to help protect yourself. And you have to sort of gauge that, um, according to what your own risk is. And if, certainly if you're older, if you have, uh, if you're on medications that re- uh, reduce how well your immune response would be, um, it, or your immune system's just not working as well as it should, then that's, those are all increased uh, risk factors, not only to get COVID, but to have a worse outcome. And then certainly one of the best ways to protect yourself is stay up on a vaccination and booster schedule. So that's something to talk to your physician about or pharmacist 
the CDC website has an updated uh, version of that. It's, it's been about three to five months since your last vaccination. I would encourage you to get uh, particularly this latest one that's just came out uh, that's more particular to Omicron. Well, that's the, the uh, all the time we have for today. I want to thank all of our callers for calling in. So Southern Remedy is a production of MPB Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and, of course, from listeners just like you. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.